Let's turn our friends to the uh, portion we read in Luke's Gospel. Now the purpose behind our readings this morning is to uh, introduce to us the main story in this parable, as I mentioned, the prodigal son. Now there are three stories in this chapter. We have the lost sheep, we have the lost coin, and we have the lost son. But it's only one parable. It's not three parables. It's only the one. So we read in verse 3, he spoke this parable unto them. Now you'll notice as you go through this chapter, Jesus doesn't use the word parable again, indicating to us that this is one parable. And he cleverly uses these uh, first two stories of the lost uh, sheep and the lost coin to give us an insight into the experiences of the man or boy, young man, we call the prodigal son. It's like like an x-ray into his heart and into his thinking. So this morning, we're going to consider um, these two stories, first of all, the lost uh, sheep and the lost coin, and if we spared in the evening, we will look at the main story of the prodigal son. <clears throat> now, the Bible's uh, interpretation of a prodigal is someone who rebels against authority, and in a biblical sense, of course, It is someone who rebels against God and uh, also, of course, against parental authority as well. Someone who walks contrary to God. Now, our communities and our churches have produced, in my own view, far too many prodigal sons and daughters over the years and over the decades. Perhaps... Some of you present here today can relate to something of that in your own past life. Perhaps you can see something of a prodigal son and daughter in the way that you once lived. And who knows, perhaps in the way you're even living today. Now, our Lord's great concern here is to demonstrate to us numerous aspects of sin and gospel salvation as these are seen in this young man's life. So this is a two-part sermon, in effect, using these stories to help us more fully understand the plight of the prodigal. So we have a lost sheep, verses 3 to 7. We have a lost coin in verses 8 to 10. Now, it would be perfectly okay to look at each of these stories as entities in their own right. It would be perfectly acceptable for preachers to preach distinct sermons on each one of these stories. There would be nothing whatsoever wrong with that. And I think it would be beneficial to see the link between the three. I think Jesus gave these three uh, stories with the intention of them being presented together as one 
story. You see, he wasn't just telling stories here. He was dealing with issues of eternal and profound consequence. Now in the context, and we always have to do justice to the context, Jesus was challenging the abysmal attitude of the religious leaders of his day towards lost souls, the lost multitudes all around them. Now, these religious leaders, they insisted on viewing people not so much as lost souls, but rather on their social standing, rather on their ethnic status. Hence, their criticism, you'll notice in verse 2, their criticism of those who are following Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he begins, verse 3, he spoke this parable to them. So in the first instance, he's addressing the scribes and the Pharisees because of their attitude. Now my friends, just before I go into my first main point, we have to remember that there's a lesson here for ourselves in how we view other people, how we um, consider our fellow citizens. When God looks down on humanity, he doesn't see different categories of people. He doesn't see some people who are more or less worthy than others. No. When God looks down on humanity, we're all the same. Doesn't matter where you are on the face of the earth, we are all the same. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're black or white, whether you're young or old, we're all the same. Sinners. Sinners on need in need of help, in need of mercy, in need of forgiveness, in need of the love of God and the provision that He has made for us in the gospel. And that's why. Uh, the church has always insisted that people must hear the gospel being preached. Because it is only the gospel of redeeming grace that brings these things home to the minds and conscience of men and women and boys and girls. Well, let's turn then to these two stories. First of all, look at the story of the lost sheep. Verse 4. One man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Now, each section of this parable cleverly conveys to us particular aspects of our spiritual poverty as sinners. And we're all poverty-stricken when it comes to that. Now, <coughs> the... Um, main theme running through each one, the story of the sheep, the story of the coin, and the story of the prodigal. The main theme is a threefold theme, lostness, restoration, and joy. And these three, they sum up humanity's plight in sin and God's salvation in the gospel. So here's a flock of a hundred sheep and only one has gone astray. Only one. The owner tells us, or we're told about the owner, 
that he left the 99 safe and sound, well looked after, we are uh, left to conclude. Now, why should one sheep wander from a flock? Those who are no sheep and who work with sheep and look after sheep, they will tell you that sheep are the most unpredictable creatures on the face of the earth. There is no reckoning and there's no reasoning why one sheep should wander away, even from a well-tended flock. Wandering, you see, is deep-rooted in sheep. It's deep-rooted in them. But if there is an even bigger mystery than that, it's why some young people stray from the fold of a loving home environment. Who has an answer for that? Who can explain that? And that's part of this parable. You see, the prodigal son, as we will see this evening, belonged to a happy family. That's the impression we are given, and we'll explore a little of that later on. But meanwhile, it's worth noting that the loss of one sheep out of a hundred, that's not a great loss. Not on the balance of risk that farmers and crofters work on. One out of a hundred is not a great loss. You see, people who work with sheep, and with any animal for that matter, they calculate loss into their attitude towards their, their flocks, whatever the animals might be. They calculate loss. There's bound to be loss each year. Now, we're impressed with the attitude of this shepherd because he wasn't willing to lose not one of the flock. Though he had another hundred, uh, 99 rather, he's not lose, willing to lose one of them. Verse 4, he left the 99 in the wilderness and went after that which was lost. In other words, he headed for the hills. He headed for the hills and he hunted high and low until his search bore fruit. And that's something of what you can read of in John chapter 10 with the Good Shepherd. But by this method, Jesus compiled these three stories so that we can see the link between the shepherd's attitude on the one hand and the prodigal's father at home on the other hand. We have to see the link between these two. You see, the father, he never gave up on his son. He never gave up on him. Never gave up watching. Never gave up waiting. He never gave up praying. He never gave up hoping. And in the case of the shepherd, his diligence was well rewarded. He found his wandering sheep at last. But we should also notice the detail that Jesus included in this fascinating story. You see, the shepherd didn't chase the wandering sheep back to the flock. That's what we see crofters and farmers doing. They put the dogs on them and chase them all the way back to them. No, that's not what this shepherd did at all. Instead, we read in verse 5, he lays it on his 
shoulders. In other words, he carries the animal back to the flock. And he does this possibly partly to ensure it doesn't wander off again. For whatever reason, he carries it all the way back to the flock. And then Jesus adds another touch to the picture. He tells us of the shepherd's joy at finding his lost sheep. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He's filled with joy at finding the lost sheep. And on an ongoing social happiness. You can almost see this man skipping back to the flock and almost singing all the way back carrying his sheep. And his joy it extends to others. He, he invites his family and his friends and his neighbours to join the celebrations. Verse 6, rejoice with me, he says, for I have found my sheep which was lost. But then Jesus makes it plain. This isn't really about a shepherd and wandering sheep. No. This is about men and women. This is about boys and girls in need of repentance, in need of turning to God for salvation. Look at verse 7. Likewise, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. So here's Jesus telling us This story is actually part of the story of the prodigal son. And furthermore, it's part of every sinner's story. It's part of your story. And it's part of mine. Even if we were nowhere near as far from God as this prodigal son. You see, my friends, there's no degrees to lostness. You can't be a little lost. If you're lost, you're lost. There are no degrees to it. So when the good shepherd of John 10 seeks his lost sheep, his first task is to bring them to evangelical repentance. And for that purpose, Jesus, we know from the gospel, sent his Holy Spirit with this very mission. He told his disciples, and thereby ourselves, John 16, verse 8, referring to the Holy Spirit, he will reprove or he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Now look again at the astonishing words of Jesus in verse 7. Joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents. How often have you thought about these words? How often have you mulled over these words? You see, we can understand readily the father's joy at his penitent son coming home. But isn't it utterly incredible that one sinner, one sinner, Showing repentance can 
cause joy in heaven, can cause joy in the midst and presence of the angels of God. Don't you find that incredible? And perhaps what is just as incredible is that this is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Do you see your friends? Can you imagine you causing joy in heaven by your repentance? Do you appreciate how significant that is for you? That's what you do. Whenever you truly repent of your sin, you are causing joy in the presence of the angels of God. They are singing their hallelujahs every time you repent of your sin. And if you don't find that incredible, my friend, as somebody once said, you better check your pulse. But that, of course, would be all impossible if the good shepherd didn't pursue you in your lostness. That's what the Good Shepherd does. That's what he was doing 2,000 years ago. That's what he's still doing today. Searching, searching, searching. Highways, byways, nations, countries, towns, cities, communities. Searching, searching, searching. Calling, calling, calling. That's what the Good Shepherd does. Has he found you? Have you heard that call in your own heart and soul? And his philosophy is always the same. We read it in John 10, verse 16. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. So no sinner is one, no sooner is one sinner brought into the kingdom of God, he's away, he's searching for another one, and another one, and another one. And he never gives up. So much then for the uh, lost sheep. Let me move to the second story of the lost coin. Verse 8. What woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? Now here's a different perspective on the plight and the sad predicament of a prodigal son. And with typical genius, Jesus now uses this lost coin to bring out aspects of a sinner's lostness that aren't readily seen in the first story. So here, Jesus is actually forensically examining all nuances of wayward sinners. And the story here is so simple so common, so ordinary that even children can understand it. We all know, don't we, what it's like to lose something small. Who hasn't turned over cushions, empty drawers, searched under furniture for looking, looking for something like a coin, something tiny? We've all done it. And the children here, if you haven't done it yet, you soon will. It's another example, I think, of the brilliance of Jesus Christ. 
how he uses timeless, everyday ideas to convey to us, to every generation, principles of gospel teaching. So here we are, 2,000 years later, and we can easily relate to this imagery. I want you to notice one important difference between the sheep and the coin. Unlike the sheep, a coin is a lifeless thing. There's no life in a coin. Now that may be so, so obvious, it's actually easy to miss the simple point that Jesus is here making. You see, in the story of the shepherd and the lost sheep, the shepherd was searching for a living thing, a sheep. Indeed, part of his joy was discovering that his sheep was still alive. And I think that's reflected in how he carried it home. Whereas, this woman hasn't lost a living thing. She's lost something in which there is no life. No life at all. But isn't that, my friends, exactly how God describes a lost sinner? Anybody without Christ. This is the way the Bible dis- describes our person. Lifeless. Spiritually lifeless. Didn't he inspire the Apostle Paul to write? Ephesians 2 verse 1. You have the quickened, you have the brought alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I don't know about you, but I remember only too clearly a large span of my life when I thought I was the most lively person on the face of the earth. But I was as dead as a kipper inside. No life. Spiritual. So a sinner without Christ is spiritually lifeless as much as a coin is life, a lifeless object. Now in fact, and this is part again of the, the brilliance and the genius of Jesus Christ, a grossly backslidden believer and a non-converted person demonstrate similar symptoms. If you were to look on the streets of Storway tomorrow and see someone you are fairly confident wasn't converted and then see someone else standing beside them whom you know was a professing Christian but hasn't been to church for a long time and is back in the world. In other words, back soon. Would you know the difference between them? No, you wouldn't. Because they show similar symptoms of deadness. So this part of the parable can actually be applied to a converted person backslidden or can be applied to a non-converted person. All indications, my friends, of spiritual life can disappear if we believe, if we drift far enough from God. I'm not saying that you can lose your faith. That's impossible. I'm not saying you can lose the, the, the principle of life God has put into your soul. That's impossible. But your awareness of that, your consciousness of that, that can go. So this parable, because of the way Jesus compiled it, can apply to both. But meanwhile, 
In a far country, the prodigal son, <coughs> the prodigal son was as dead as this coin. There was no spiritual life there at all. And furthermore, the lifelessness of the coin meant it couldn't appreciate its own lostness. Again, the brilliance of Jesus Christ is coming through with this. When the prodigal son was parting with his friends, he had no idea that he was lost. He couldn't understand that he was lost. In fact, if somebody went up to him and said to him, look, you're lost. What would be the reaction? What's the reaction when you tell people, your, your, your friends or your neighbours who aren't Christians, you're lost? I'll tell you what the reaction is. They scoff at you. They laugh in your face. And I think that's what the prodigal son would have done to anybody who had suggested to him that he was lost. <clears throat> well, here's the lost coin. It's in the same room as its owner. Yet it couldn't tell its owner where it was. It just lay there, helpless and hopeless, just like the prodigal in the far country, finding himself in the piggery, hopeless, helpless. Now at that stage, despite knowing that he had a loving home and a loving father and no doubt loving mother, and parents that cared deeply for him, not a word escapes from his lips calling for help. Not a word. Now perhaps this is something else you can relate in your own life, as I can in mine. Those years that you and I were dead in trespass and sins, did we call out for help? Did we acknowledge your lostness? No. We did not. We were as dumb as this coin in the woman's house. We were spiritually paralyzed in our sin. Oh, my friends, what a mercy that God doesn't leave sinners in that state and in that condition. Now, notice how Jesus brings this out in the, in the story. The owner here, the lady, she is determined to find the coin. So first of all, she lights a candle, verse 8. Now this, I believe, corresponds with gospel light shining into a sin-darkened heart. Now that's how the Bible is described for us, isn't it? 2 Peter 1, verse 19, a light that shines in a dark place. However, my friends, you should always remember that the light of the Word of God is a reflection. It's a reflection of an infinitely greater light. And the source of that light is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he calls himself, I am the light of the world. But the woman does more than that. She also, we're told in verse 8, swept her house 
and sold the coin diligently. It is, it's, a, it's a vivid picture, isn't it? It's so easy to imagine this woman on her proverbial knees, as it were, candle in hand, sweeping the floor, searching, 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 every nook and cranny. And I think this is meant to convey to us the heartbreaking search of the prodigal's father. He may not have left home in searching for his son. He preferred to search for him on his knees. Pleading with God in prayer to bring his son home. And maybe that's the mistake that many parents of prodigal sons and daughters have commit. We don't search for them in the right way. In other words, this father never gave up. Never give up watching. Never give up waiting. Never give up praying until he saw his son appearing on the horizon. Coming home at last. So both the shepherd and the woman rejoiced in the recovery of their lost possessions. Verse 9. Rejoice with me, she says, for I have found the peace that I lost. Then Jesus confirms to us again the spiritual dimension of these stories. Verse 10. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So these two minor stories, my friends, they're, on the face of it, they're about mere creatures. Or at least one is about a mere creature, the other is about a, a mere object. But it was really never about either. It was about a poor, lost And not only that, but the story of the prodigal son's recovery and the rescue of men and women and boys and girls every day from the condemnation of sin, surely that is far more profound, far more moving than anything being conveyed to us in these two minor stories. You see, my friends, God leaves no stone unturned in his determination to bring home his lost sheep, in his determination to bring boys and girls and men and women to evangelical repentance, in his determination to bring them to the light of the gospel. He will leave no stone unturned. Our world, my friends, is full of prodigal sons and daughters. Our communities are full of prodigal sons and daughters. People in desperate need of only what this man, Jesus Christ, can give them. Do you see yourself in that picture? Or can you remember a day when you did see yourself in that picture? You could be of another bent of mind, of course. And Jesus brings that out in verse 7. 
perhaps you're one of the just persons, the good people who need no repentance. Maybe that's how you view yourself. Well, if that's the case, when you go home this afternoon, you read Romans 3, verse 10, which will remind you there's none righteous. No, not one. So, my friends, as I bring this sermon to an end, let's cause music in heaven by our repentance. Let's cause joy in the presence of the angel, angels by falling on our knees this very Sabbath day, crying unto God for mercy and forgiveness. And don't you think that just because you're a professing Christian, you can't do this and you don't need this? You do. We all need to repent. Repentance is an ongoing reality in the, in, in the experience of all of God's people. Constantly need repentance. So let's make this Sabbath day a monument of remembrance to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's good shepherd who refused to give up on us, who brought us into his own kingdom and under the shelter of his own shed blood. Let's make this Sabbath day a monument of remembrance to that reality. And let me just add in conclusion. If you're a parent here this morning, burdened with a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter, remember the lessons here. Never give up. Never give up searching, watching, waiting, and praying on your knees before God so that what you cannot do for your prodigal sons and daughters he can with remarkable ease and with swiftness because it's only when he does it that he will have the glory Amen Gracious and blessed God we give thanks on this Sabbath morning that we are found here once again in the fellowship of the gospel, gathered around the word of life, exploring the unsearchable riches, these precious truths that can feed our souls and educate our minds and encourage us in the dark and dismal day in which we live. Bless us together, prepare us for what remains of the day. Pardon sin, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude, friends, singing in Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We will sing from 8 to 13. Psalm 51. 8 to 13. <clears throat> of gladness and of joyfulness make me to hear the voice that so these very bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. 
All mine iniquities blot out, thy face hide from my sin. Create a clean heart, Lord, renew a right spirit me within. 8 to 30 to God's grace. Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.